I want to go to a very familiar psalm to us all. Psalm 51, a psalm of David. A, uh, a, a deep-hearted psalm. This psalm is heartfelt by David, and for good reason. And I, and I hope to uh, unpack that a little for you uh, this evening. Uh, this is a psalm, the heading is, uh, is a psalm of David when Nathan the prophet came to him after he had gone into Bathsheba. So uh, this is a psalm that addresses those two sins, those two terrible, terrible sins that the king of Israel, David, did and committed. And he was found out a year later when the prophet was given uh, prophecy by God, wisdom by God to go to the king and uh, confront him over his sin. Uh, David hid it from Israel, from the people, tucked it away there, put it all the way back in the corner, a very deep, dark corner of his mind for a year. But he was one of God's own, and as the scripture says elsewhere, your sin, dear people, your sin and mine will find you out. So let us now hear God's words from Psalm 51. I'll read the entire psalm. We're going to focus on one verse of it main, in the main. Uh, hear now God's word and this, this deep, heartfelt prayer of God's servant, uh, King David. <clears throat> Have mercy upon me, O God, according to thy loving kindness. According unto the multitude of thy tender mercies, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from mine iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I acknowledge my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against thee, the only, have I sinned and done this evil in thy sight. That thou mightest be justified when thou speaks and be clear when thou judgest. Behold, I was shapen in iniquity and in sin did my mother conceive me. Behold, thou desirest truth in the inward parts, and in the hidden parts thou shalt make me to know wisdom. Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Make me to hear joy and gladness, that the bones which thou hast broken may rejoice. Hide thy face from my sins, and blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from thy presence, and take not thy Holy Spirit from me. Restore unto me the joy of thy salvation, and uphold me with thy free spirit. Then will I teach transgressors thy ways, and sinners shall be converted unto thee. Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God, thou God of my salvation, and my tongue shall sing aloud of thy righteousness. O Lord, open thou my lips. And my mouth shall show forth thy praise. For thou desires not sacrifice, else would I give it. Thou delights not in burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit. A broken and a contrite heart, O God, thou wilt not despise. Do good in thy good pleasure unto Zion. Build thou the walls of Jerusalem. 
Then shalt thou be pleased with the sacrifices of righteousness, with burnt offering and whole burnt offering. Then shall they, they offer bullocks upon thine altar. May God bless his word to us. Once again, Lord, we do pray that you would bless this word to us. It is a, a very faithful prayer. It is a, a needful prayer. It is one that we need to uh, look into and, and rejoice in. We that know the forgiveness of our sins in Jesus Christ. And we are, are thankful that you rescued the psalmist from his sin and gave a good example to us, set it before our eyes even this, this evening. And we do ask and pray in, in his name, in the name of Jesus. Amen. Now what I, I have done is uh, I have uh, some notes here, like seven pages, of, uh, of notes and a couple of uh, pages from an article I read concerning this uh, this psalm and this verse, uh, verse 7. Well, I'm going to put this aside to save some time. Uh, so now there's only the seven notes. And what I want to do is I'm going to do it a little differently. Normally I preach extemporaneously with some little notes, but I'm going to, I'm going to read this more so that we, we, we can savor it. And I, I have... Uh, kind of worked it out. I also have a number of quotes to, to give you. Uh, so uh, I'm just going to read this more so than I normally do in my preaching. Uh, but my verse is uh, verse 7. And uh, there is a, a very powerful verse, uh, Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Uh, this past Wednesday, uh, in the morning, it uh, it was really snowing quite heavily for a couple, few hours. It snowed and then it stopped. And uh, as it cleared, uh, it uh, it revealed a, a a beauty that those in Florida seldom, if ever, have seen, just by pictures. Maybe uh, it was just a winter wonderland. It was a uh, a beauty to behold the uh, the white blanket of snow that covered all the fields and draped the trees and the roofs of the houses and such. It was a wonderful look. <clears throat> we we want to hold uh, that picture for ourselves. Uh, if, by the grace of God, we may. Uh, this was the psalmist's desire for himself. And, and yes, even more so. Uh, listen again to the verse that, uh, verse 7, Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Uh, I don't know if there's much else that's whiter in this world than and snow, uh, fresh, freshly fallen snow, but uh, he wants to be whiter, uh, whiter than snow. And how beautiful a prayer uh, that is. The uh, mention of hyssop, hyssop was uh, one of about 24 different varieties of plant life in that region. 
And uh, hyssop was associated with ritual cleansing and forgiveness of sin by Israel. It was the uh, plant Israel used to, uh, to pick up the blood of the lamb and uh, sprinkle it or paint it upon the doorpost. So it was uh, during the Passover. So it was associated with the Passover. Passover, of course, the new Passover for us is the Lord's table, the Lord's Supper. And uh, Hyssop reminds us of why Jesus uh, went to the cross in, uh, in John chapter... 19, you don't have to turn to that, I have uh, three verses to read. John chapter 19, verse 28, After this, Jesus, knowing that all things were now accomplished, and that the scripture might be fulfilled, saith, I thirst. Now there was set a vessel full of vinegar, and they filled the sponge with vinegar, and put it upon hyssop, and put it to his mouth. And when Jesus there, therefore, had received the vinegar, he said, It is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up the ghost. So this, uh, this hyssop and uh, its association with the cleansing uh, from, uh, from sin, uh, the Passover is... is projecting forward the truth that Jesus Christ, the Son of God, is coming and he's going to be the sacrifice that takes away all our sin. His business was to absolutely, completely fulfill and secure the forgiveness of all our sins. And that is a wonder, wonderful picture to keep in mind and hold forever. Uh, to be purged with uh, hyssop speaks uh, to the reason, to the entire uh, force of the ceremonial cleansing of the law. All ceremonial washings and cleansings and purifications point to the only one true cleansing, the blood of Jesus Christ. All the uncleanness pictured in the law points to sin, to our sin. And all the blood sprinkled with hyssop pictures Christ's blood. At the end, there is man's sin, and there is Christ's blood. Revelation 1, verse 5. Man's sin, in the end, is man's sin and Christ's blood. When it comes to the scriptures, when it comes to the whole ceremonial system, when it comes to much, major portion of the Old Testament. All comes to that. The Hebrew word translated uh, purge means to purify. Uh, To purify from sin, to purify from uncleanness. And the hyssop in this verse is used as 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 an agent for moral purification. David prays here that the the Lord, like a priest, would cleanse him from all his defilement. The unclean, uh, the lepers, uh, people who have touched a a dead body, uh, in the symbolic act of ritual cleansing, David here is praying that the Lord would be his priest. You see, the leper would come after he may have been healed and went through certain uh, 
ceremony and testing and all that stuff would come before the priest and ask to be cleansed. And they use hyssop and, and, uh, and he'd be sprinkled with water. Well, David here is not asking a priest to do this. He's asking God to be his priest. And he's asking God to cleanse him from his sin at this point. Spurgeon says, Sprinkle the atoning blood upon me. Give me the reality which legal ceremonies only symbolize. That's what David is asking here, that God be be his priest to cleanse him. David understood that his uh, defilement was of a more awful sort than the outward uncleanness of even ugly leprosy. He understood the meaning of Jesus' words, for example, in Mark chapter 7, verse 15. Jesus says this, There is nothing from without a man that entering into him can defile him, but the things which come out of him Those are they that defile the man. From within, out of the heart of men, proceed evil thoughts, adulteries, fornications, murders, thefts, covetousness, wickedness, deceit, lasciviousness, an evil eye, blasphemy, pride, foolishness. All these evil things come from within. And they defile. And that is what David is getting at here. He's not just defiled, you know, committing the sins that he committed from without. It came from within him, deep within him. In fact, he understood so deeply that he was a sinner, died in the worst sinner from his mother's womb. I was raised up, I was born, I was conceived in, in, in iniquity. So he realizes that it was his heart, that he had a deep-seated heart problem. And Psalm 51 shows this. He says, basically he's saying, I am totally defiled and unworthy here before you, O Lord. Purge me, and I shall be clean. Wash me. And I shall be whiter than snow. Like the leper upon whom the priest had performed the cleansing rites, I shall again be admitted into the assembly of thy people and allowed to share in the privileges of the true Israel, while in thy sight also, through Jesus my Lord, I shall be accepted. Cleanse from the foul actions as king of Israel. And even more fundamental than that, the filth of sin that now defiled him. And now he understood his sin from the beginning. It came from the womb. It came from conception. I am evil. Through and through, from head to toe, like a leper covered with leprosy within me. In the Hebrew, there are two words for cleansing from sin. One means to bathe. Take a bath. Bathe yourself. Bathe things. 
that you want clean. And the other means to wash, as by treading or stamping. As when a woman takes clothes to the water's edge, dips them in water and soaps them up and then rubs them on a rock, on a stone, real hard and kneads them and you know just really bangs them out, bangs them cl- uh, clean. And that's the word that, uh, that is used here uh, for, uh, for washing. Wash me, clean me. You know, stamp me clean. You know, get me clean. I need a deep, deep... I need to be laundered. It's basically what he said. I need to be laundered. This psalm is the only place where this Hebrew word for wash is used in this way. It's used in Jeremiah chapter 2 and chapter 4. I'm not going to go to that, but I'll just mention. In in. In Jeremiah chapter 2, the same word for wash is used, and Jeremiah is telling the people, uh, the individual, for example, to go wash himself. Wash himself clean, go to the priest and, and, and be washed clean. And uh, in chapter 4 of Jeremiah, it's saying that uh, uh, to Jerusalem, that you must be washed. The city must wash itself clean. Uh, <clears throat> here... Uh, David is saying, Lord, wash me clean. It's not the individual go to the priest or the city has to be washed clean. It's, Lord, wash me clean. It's very personal. And it's very direct. Let us consider further David's sin and forgiveness. Now, an old divine often uh, used a little book, perhaps you have heard about this, uh, to illustrate God's salvation in Jesus Christ. The book had three pages, or they called them leaves, uh, three leaves uh, in the book. It was called the, the Wordless Book. I don't know if you ever heard of that. It consisted of a black page, a red page, and a white page. Maybe one of your ministers along the way had brought that book to you and showed you it. I don't know. It's been used a lot, but this comes from an old divine. Uh, The old minister used uh, the book to uh, gaze upon the black leaf to remind himself of the sinful state of his nature. Upon the red leaf to call to his remembrance the precious blood of Jesus Christ. And upon the white leaf to picture to him the perfect righteousness which God has given to believers through the atoning sacrifice of Jesus Christ's Son. And so let's gaze upon these pages a little deeper, a little more intently. Let's uh, look at the black leaf of this book with David. Before he wrote this psalm, he was in a very dark, Place. He was very black in his soul. David had committed the sins of adultery and murder, about which we read in 2 Samuel 12, verses 1 to 14. And there Nathan outlines the whole deal <coughs> to him. And uh, David, uh, the Lord sent Nathan to David. Uh, and he told that the story. I'm sure you, you 
you heard this before, you read this before. There were two men in one city, the one rich, the other poor. The rich man had exceeding many flocks, herds. The poor man had nothing save one little ewe lamb, which he had bored and nourished up. And it grew up together with him and with his children, and did eat of his own meat, and drank from his own cup, and lay in his bosom, and was unto him as a daughter. And there came a travel unto the man, and he's... Uh, <clears throat> He spared to take of his own flock and of his own herd to dress for the wayward, the wayfaring man that was come to him, but took the poor man's lamb and dressed it for the man that was come to him. And David's anger was kindled, greatly kindled against the man. And he said to Nathan, As the Lord lives, the man that has done this thing shall surely die, and he shall restore the lamb fourfold, because he did this thing and because he had no pity. And Nathan said to David, Thou art the man. Then said the Lord God of Israel, and you have to to appreciate what's going on here. What David did. Not only that, the Lord reminds him. I anointed thee king over Israel. I delivered thee out of the hand of Saul. I gave thee thy master's house and thy master's wives into thy bosom and gave thee the house of Israel and Judah. And if if that had been too little, I would moreover have given unto you Many more things. Wherefore hast thou despised the commandment of the Lord to do evil in his sight? Thou hast killed Uriah the Hittite with the sword, and hast taken his wife to be thy wife, and hast slain him with the sword of the children of Ammon. Now listen. Brothers and sisters, David committed... Two horrible sins. The sins of adultery and murder. Adultery, we do not even wish to discuss. It's especially in the presence of young people. For it's, it, it's not only, it not only deeply wounds those engaged in the act of adultery, but it hurts others, other people and even at times destroys person's life, another person's life, the innocent party sometimes, it destroys them. It's a horrific sin, adultery. And murder, murder is shocking. To kill another human being is something from which there's no turning back. A person committing such a heinous act is never again quite the same. Such sins, like adultery and murder, once done, can never, ever be undone. To boot, to add, Uriah was one of David's mighty men. There's a list of mighty men, and he's the last one listed as the mighty men of David. The last shall be first. He stayed with David. He was with him alongside David through thick and thin. When David was, was, was being attacked, when he was being oppressed, when he, Uriah was right with him, right by his side. 
He came through the blessings and the fires of David's life with him, never leaving him, never forsaking him, committing his life. He's, uh, he's, he's, he's warring against the enemy while David's at home with Uriah's wife. He's at the front lines of the enemy, fighting for the king and for Israel. And David returns to his close friend Uriah. To violate his wife. And then to violate his life. Samuel reminds David how much the Lord had done for him. And how great was his love towards David. Not only that, but... How great David's love was for the Lord, to the Lord. In fact, David loved God so much at one point that God says of him that this man is a man after my own heart. He was blacker than black at this point, before his confession anyway. Thank God you and I have never committed either sin in action, adultery, or murder. But we must remember our Lord's teaching in the Sermon on the Mount. Our thoughts count against us. Sinful anger and lust, lustful thoughts, do cloud the sky above. They darken, they darken the soul. Dearly beloved in the Lord... I urge you not to shy away from admitting your sin. This is a communion. I do. I, I, I urge you not to store it away in some dark closet in your mind, push it back, push it back, away from you. But rather, beloved, I, I, I urge you to recall to mind and, and bring your sin to the fore. The teachings and instructions that, that have revealed your sin to you. Remember them? Those things, those sermons or those lessons that convinced and convicted you of your guilt before God. Sins you have returned to over and over again. Unclean thoughts. Crooked words. Unholy actions that have dulled your spiritual senses. Bring them all. Bring them up and bring them out before the table of the Lord. And have God's Spirit, have Christ's Spirit who is here, present with us now, wash them all away. Do not hide your sin from God. Confess your sin. Bring it up. Bring it out. And be cleansed. I'm not talking about public professions. I'm talking about private ones, prayers and confession to the Lord. And admitting, admitting how terrible a sinner you can be. This brings us to the second page, the red leaf, which brings out to our remembrance the precious blood of Christ. When the sinner Christ washed me. There must be some fount of 
cleansing where he can be washed whiter than snow. And so there is. Nothing but the crimson blood of Jesus can wash away the crimson stain of sin. It neutralizes, washes it away. Though your sins be as scarlet, they shall be white. You shall be white as snow. Red as crimson by the blood of Jesus takes it all away. What is it about Jesus that enables him to save all those that come unto God by him? We must try to understand the greatness of the atonement. We must lie beneath the shadow of the cross and, and, and contemplate there. Uh, try to understand the, the, the five wounds that he bore for you on that tree. Try to understand the length and the breadth and the height and the depth of God's love for you that's in Jesus Christ. Really pray about that. Think about that. Contemplate these things. Spurgeon points out that the power of Jesus to cleanse from sin must lie first in the greatness of his person. It's not conceivable that the sufferings of a mere man, however holy or great he might have been, could have made atonement for the sins of all the whole multitude of the Lord's chosen people. It was because Jesus Christ was one of the persons in the divine trinity. He was, it was because the Son of Mary was the Son of God. It was because he lived and he labored and he suffered and he died. Who was the great creator without whom was not anything made that was made. That his blood has such efficacy. That it can wash the blackest sinner so clean that he is actually appears whiter, much whiter than snow. No sinner can atone for his own sins, no less the sins of many. But when God became man by putting on flesh and then suffered unto death, even the death of the cross, there came, there can be no limit set, no limit set to the value of the atonement that he made. We hold most firmly, says Spurgeon, the f- we most we hold most firmly the doctrine of particular redemption. Christ loved his church and gave himself for it. There can be no limit to deity. There must be infinite value in the atonement offered by him who is divine. The only limit of the atonement is in its design. And that design was that Christ should give eternal life to as many as the Father has given him. So, because Christ is divine, because he's, there's no limit to deity, there's no limit to his atoning sacrifice, except by design. And the second reason why the power of the cleansing blood of Jesus must also lie in the intense sufferings he endured, make atonement for his people. Never was there a case like his in all the annals of history. 
in his merely physical sufferings, there may have been some who uh, endured as much as he did. The human body only capable of a certain amount of pain and agony, and others besides the Lord have reached their limit. But there was an element in his sufferings that was never present in any other case. The fact of his dying in the room, the place, the stead of his people, the one great sacrifice for the whole of his redeemed makes his death altogether unique. So that not even the noblest of the noble army of martyrs can share the glory with him. Now his mental sufferings, they were those. There were the physical sufferings, but there were the the mental sufferings. And they're very vital to the atoning sacrifice of Christ. The sufferings of his soul were the very soul of his sufferings, Spurgeon said. And we go on to list some things. If you can comprehend, and here's a little help for you to understand his mental sufferings. If you can comprehend the bitterness of his betrayal by one who had been his follower and friend, and his desertion by all his disciples, his arraignment and for sedition and blasphemy before creatures, creatures whom he had himself made, if you can realize what it was for him who did no sin to be made sin for us, and to have laid upon him the iniquity of us all, if you can picture for yourself how he loathed sin and shrank from it, you can form some slight idea of what his pure nature must have suffered for our sake. But the worst of his sufferings, the worst of his sufferings, must have been when his father's wrath was poured out upon him, as he bore what his people deserved to bear, but which now they will never have to bear. The waves, uh, the waves of swelling grief did over his bosom roll, and mountains of almighty wrath lay heavy on his soul. For the father to hide his face from his son, for the son's agony to cry out, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? was the worst, the worst of sufferings which we cannot imagine. The pouring out to the dreg, to the last drop, the wrath of God against our sin, to the last drop, so that our cup has not a drop of wrath in it. It was indeed a price so great. That's why the atonement of Jesus Christ is so weighty. So great an atonement is it that it, it turns the vilest of offenders into saint. It's taken the weightiest of sins and lifted them right off. It's cast a multitude of sins which no man can number into the sea of forgetfulness, never to emerge again. However black your sin may be, you may pray with the psalmist, purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. And this turns the page from the red, the black to the red,
to the white. What a beautiful sight, like I said this week, uh, the snow, the snow-covered environment. What, what a wonder. You, uh, black sinner, come to Jesus, and you shall be not merely tolerably clean, you shall become whiter than the purest, whitest snow on the face of the earth there's ever been. When I had uh, driven a bus and, and also a limo on a sunny day uh, after a fresh snowfall, it would not take very long before the brightness of the reflected sunlight off the snow would pain my eyes. Spurgeon said, if the whole earth were to be covered with it, this white snow, it would, we'd all be blind. Yet the blackest of sinners can be made whiter than the snow by the blood of Jesus Christ. The blackest heart. The most terrible. Who, who can imagine committing adultery and killing the person, the husband of that person? And uh, if Jesus Christ cleans you, uh, uh, it's, it's unlike the snow that loses its pure whiteness after a short time passes. The sinner made pure and white loses not his brightness. He is forever made whiter than snow. For the robe of Christ's righteousness is, it covers him. And he is permanently white before God. The believer in Christ is as pure at one time as he is at another. It does not vary. God does not look upon the varying purity of our sanctification as our ground of acceptance with him. He looks upon the matchless and immutable purity of the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ. And he accepts us in Christ. And not what we are in ourselves. The white of snow is a created whiteness. It's a creaturely whiteness. The whiteness that we gain from the imputed righteousness of Jesus Christ is divine. We are divinely white through the imputed righteousness of Jesus Christ. That's not creaturely. Let, 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 me, let me show you something before we go to communion. I know. Just another minute or two. Ephesians chapter 2. Verses that you, you know these scriptures. You don't even have to turn to them. You, you've heard them before. You know, you know them. Probably by memory. For by grace are ye saved through faith. And that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. The gift of God is the righteousness of Christ imputed to us. Our salvation is a gift from beginning to end. It is the greatest gift that you, will, you can't even imagine. That when God gives a gift, He gives a gift as God gives gifts. 
Spurgeon points out, he tells a little thing here. He said, uh, if I were in great need and obtained access to the queen, and after laying my case before her, she said to me, I, I feel a very deep interest in your case. Here's a penny. I should be quite sure I had not seen the queen, but some lady's maid or servant that had been making a fool of me. The queen gives as a queen. Does it give a penny? You, you, you hear our president. He calls these people that are hurting and in trouble, and he says, whatever you need, I will give you. And he has the United States Treasury behind him. When God gives a gift, do not stagger at it. But be assured that that is genuine because who can give salvation to anyone, no less a multitude that no man can number? Who can give eternal life? Who can give you the gift of his presence within you to live and abide in you, to be with you wherever you are, wherever you go? To make promises, yes and amen, that are beyond imagination. Who can do that? When God gives gifts, He gives great gifts. And you and I need to understand that. He doesn't give us crumbs. He gives us heaven. He gives us the table. He gives us a wedding ceremony. He gives us more than we can handle. For He's a king. And as a king, he gives the gifts of a king, not a peasant. And so I end. So sinner, go to the great God with your great sin. Ask for great grace that you may be washed in the great fountain filled with the blood of the great sacrifice. And you shall have the great salvation which Christ has procured, and for it you shall ascribe great praise forever and ever to Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. Amen. Let us pray. Heavenly Lord, we thank you for the gift of our salvation, so great and true and free, for the forgiveness of all of our sins. We need to just come to you and ask you to forgive us to strengthen us, to point us in that direction that we know we should go and go in it. God, may your great gift, the great gift of your salvation, shine through us and shine brightly. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.